Welcome to another great message by Pastor Adrian Wright, lead pastor at Anchor Church. We pray this message will encourage, inspire, and transform your life. Our heart is to share the hope of Jesus with our city and nation. Today I want to talk to you about the furnace of freedom. Um, and and I, I trust this is going to encourage you, the furnace of freedom. Why don't you just turn to your neighbor for a moment and say, this is going to be hot. It obviously comes from this Old Testament account that we have where the people of Israel are in captivity uh, in, the, in the nation and in the land of Babylon. And they're under King Nebuchadnezzar. And King Nebuchadnezzar, at one point, he has a dream and he sets up an idol. He creates a massive golden idol that he erects in the plains of Dura. And then he calls all of his officials and all of his rulers and all of his magistrates and, and, and all of his people from all over the provinces of Babylon together to dedicate the image that he has set up and to declare that everybody in the kingdom of Babylon is to worship that image, right? Everybody in that kingdom is to worship the image. We see it in the book of Daniel, chapter number three. If you have your Bibles here this morning, you can turn with me to Daniel, chapter number three. And in verse 3 it says, Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. They gathered together in the plains of Jura to stand around this great idol. And then King Nebuchadnezzar calls a herald forward, and this herald speaks out and makes a declaration. And the declaration is that the people of Babylon are instructed, are commanded, that whenever the music plays, whenever they hear the harp and the lyre, and the, it even includes bagpipes. I don't know if some people travel from Scotland, but, but it says whenever you hear the bagpipes, whenever you hear the music, you are to fall down and you are to worship the image. That's the declaration. When you hear the music, fall down and worship. And there is a grave warning for anybody who will not worship the image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. We find it in verse 6, Daniel 3, 6 says, And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. You'll be burnt alive. If you, if you refuse to fall down and worship this idol, immediately you will be thrown into the burning furnace fiery furnace. And so I'm going to spend a few minutes today, and we're going to spend a few minutes today learning about why this story and this scripture is so incredibly relevant to our lives, and how it points us to our need of Jesus and His presence in our lives. So I'm just going to take a moment to pray, and we're going to look at this. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you so much that you are present with us right now, that you're speaking to us, that you're encouraging our hearts, Lord. Father, I know that there are people that are going through difficult moments, difficult seasons, challenges. It's, life is, has so much of that. And we just thank you right now, Lord, that, that we can know that you're present with us, that you're our Savior, that you're our Deliverer. Help us this morning, Lord God, to receive your Word, to, to receive courage and faith and hope in our hearts to know that you are the God who will deliver us in every situation. We give you all the glory for your Word, for your presence, for your Spirit this morning. As you're changing hearts and changing lives, we give you the glory. In Jesus' name, everybody said, 
Amen. Amen. So how many of you know that life can feel a little bit like a fiery furnace sometimes, right? And when I say a little bit, I mean a lot, okay? I mean, we go through so many challenges, so many obstacles in, daily, in, in our daily life, so many dis, uh, disappointments and, 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 and you know, things that we, that we face, um, difficult moments, pressure, temptation, frustration, that it's actually quite amazing that all of us don't feel disillusioned and disheartened a lot more often, right? If you feel, if you're in a, in a season of discouragement right now, I want you to know that there's not, there isn't something wrong with you. Because discouragement and, and feeling disheartened and battling our way through life is a part of our human experience. But there is a response for us as people of faith that comes out of our belief in God's presence and God's love and God's grace in our lives. But it's actually amazing that people don't feel disillusioned more often. And sometimes, you know, sometimes it's not just the crisis, you know, because we face crisis. You might be going through a financial crisis. You might be going through a family crisis. You might be going through some, some career crisis or personal crisis or parenting crisis, right? We, we face crisis, but if you're like me, um, crisis can actually be something that we can handle quite well. Like many of us can rally for crisis, right? Like the, it actually gives us something to focus on and something to do that you can, you can kind of put away everything else and go, this is the main thing I have to sort out right now. And as you start chipping away at that problem and trusting God, and when you come through it, you're like, but, but how many of you know that sometimes the, the greatest challenge in life is not the crisis moments, but the moments between crisis. When you battle things not on the outside, but things on the inside. When, when you start to ask, who am I? Why am I here? Why do I still struggle with the same things? Why do I still have the same insecurities? Why do I still feel like I doubt and that, and that I'm in this moment of obscurity and, 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 I'm, and I'm frustrated and I'm waiting and I, and I don't know what's next? Those can be real difficult as we stand before sometimes the furnace of frustration, the furnace of frustration in our lives. That's why we need help, because what happens is, is that as we face this inner frustration and unsettledness and temptation, the enemy comes and he offers us alternatives to, to fill what we feel is the void inside of us. It's, it's a hunger, and, and the hungers and the desires that we have inside of us that causes us to give in to temptation. As we lose sight of our identity in an effort to feel something, we would literally give in to anything to try and fill that void. I was thinking about how, how our integrity, which means to be whole, to be one, to what you believe and what you say and what you do, those things are all connected, they're authentic, they're connected to your heart. And I realized that when we lose sight of our identity, which is what the enemy tries to do, the next thing to go is your integrity. When you forget who you are, you begin to live according to who you think you should be or what you're trying to be or what you're trying to fill, this void that you're trying to fill. And so there's this temptation where we would literally give in to anything that would make us feel more fulfilled. And this is exactly how the enemy 
works. Now, I want to I make this clear because we live in such a naturalized and, and secular, secularized society that we sometimes forget that there is an enemy, that there is an enemy of your soul that is working around the clock to discourage you, working around the clock to get you out of God's will for your life, working around the clock to see how much he can destroy, how much he can steal, how much he can break down, what he can do in your relationships, what he can do in your family, what he can do in your community. 1 Peter 5 verse 8 tells us about the enemy of our souls, and it says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, whose adversary? Our adversary. We have an adversary. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. This is the enemy of our souls. This is the battle that we're engaged in on this earth. John 10.10, Jesus says, the thief comes only, he only comes with one mission, which is to steal and kill and destroy. But Jesus says, I am the antidote to his destructive ways. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. But sometimes as, as the church, we, you know, we get so stuck into our everyday you know, lives that, that, we, that we forget that there's an enemy, that we forget that there are attacks that come against us and our families. The source of some of our, our, our frustrations and our difficulties because the ultimate goal of the enemy is to get you so disillusioned and disheartened that you would turn away from the only living hope, which is Jesus. That you would begin to doubt God's faithfulness. That you would begin to doubt his care for you. That you'd begin to doubt his love for you. That you'd give up hope of God's presence and redirect your faith. Because that's the thing. You're going to live by faith one way or another. We are created to live by faith. We are created to worship. And so if you no longer worship God, the devil isn't robbing your faith more, as much as what he, that he is redirecting it. He wants you to have faith in the things of this world. He wants you to find your worth and your significance and your fulfillment in relationships, in, in, in money, in your career, in your achievements, in what people say about you. It is still faith. You're looking to something other than God to fulfill you. In essence, you're worshiping the idol just like the one in Babylon. Rather than worshiping God, I don't know if he's going to fulfill me. I don't know if he's going to satisfy me. I don't know if he's going to meet my need. So I'll rather worship what I can see and taste and feel and touch in this world. It's worship, it's faith, but it's redirected faith. And that's what the enemy is trying to do, to get you to trust in and to hope in and to look to anything but God. And so he trains us. I remember um, training. I had a, a puppy that we wanted to train. And, and I remember that, that, that you, would, you would give him a command. And in order to, to get him to, for example, sit, you would say the word. And then when you said it and he sat, then you would give him a little treat. You'd give him a little reward. And you would literally train. And this is how we, how we train animals. It's sometimes how we also train children. But we, we would train. You'd be trained to obey the command. 
And you know, that's how the enemy trains us. In Babylon, it was when they heard the music, they had to fall down and worship. But what the enemy does with us is that he highlights your need. He puts emphasis on your shortcoming. He puts emphasis on your lack of fulfillment. He puts emphasis on your loneliness. He puts emphasis on the void that you feel. And he says, right, now you've heard the music. Now I want you to obey. Bow down when you hear the music. Bow down when you hear the loneliness. Bow down when you hear the sound of hurt. Bow down when you, when, you, when you hear the noise of offense. Bow down when you feel you have need. Bow down and worship me, and I'll give you a treat. He trains us to find our hope in the things of this world rather than in God, to fall down whenever you hear the music. And this is what we face in this world. The devil literally has been using this one tactic for all of eternity, for, for all of the time that this earth has existed, all of the history of this world, he has used this one tactic. And you know why he doesn't need to change the tactic? Because it works. Because it's so effective. I remember when I played rugby in high school, our coaches told us that it doesn't matter if the opposite team hears the call and even knows the move that we're going to do. Because the moves were designed to be so effective that even if the opposition knew exactly what we were going to do, if we did it right, we would score anyways. They wouldn't be able to stop it. And so sometimes the, the tactic of the enemy is so clear to us. We know what he's going to do. We know how he's tempting us. We know. If I said, let's do a pop quiz today, how many of you know there is ultimate fulfillment in money? None of us would put up our hands. How many of you know that, that your, your spouse is going to fill the void in your heart? And so if you can just find a husband or find a wife, you'll be happy forever. How many, how many of you say, yes, that's true, put up your hand? None of you. We know the answers to these questions, but the tactic is so effective, we fall for them anyways. We fall down and worship anyways. He's used the same scheme. And so it's very clear that we're not going to outsmart him in our own strength. Ultimately, if I can summarize what his scheme is, it's to make you so aware of your hunger, of your lack, of your need, that he gets you to your knees and then feeds you with compromise. He feeds you with compromise and the false promise of fulfillment. Oh, you're hungry. I have some bread. Oh, oh, you long for this? Oh, I can give you that. Make you aware of your need and then give you a false promise. He even tried it with Jesus. Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit. He had been baptized by John the Baptist and then the Holy Spirit descended upon him. He was filled with the Spirit. That is his, his spiritual reality was that Jesus was full. But then he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights and his physical reality was that he was hungry. And sometimes we don't know how to distinguish the two. Our physical hungers, to us, we, we, we take it as our spiritual hungers. And so what does the enemy do? He doesn't go, oh, Jesus, I know you're so spiritually fulfilled in your relationship with the Father, so now I'm going to try and tempt you. That's not the tactic. The tactic is to not even mention the relationship with the Father, but to say, hey, you're hungry, aren't you? You're hungry. Aren't I don't know what's happening between you and God, you know, but you're hungry, aren't you? What are your desires? What are you feeling? And he begins to put pressure 
on your physical, natural hungers in order to get you to obey. Matthew 4 verse 2 says, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry. I think that's an understatement. I think we can, you know, the, the writer of, of Matthew, Matthew in writing this, was saving time by saying that, all right? Jesus was proper hungry after not eating for 40 days and 40 nights. And the tempter, that's the enemy. The tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Make it all about the food. But Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. You say, see, Jesus is going from, from the physical, yes, I'm hungry. But you know what? Life isn't all about having a full stomach. That's not where fulfillment comes from. This is what Jesus is saying. That's not where your satisfaction comes from. That's not where your hope is. He goes, it's not just about the physical food. It's not just about the bread. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It's the truth of God. It's the gospel. It's the grace of God. It's our relationship with God. It's what God offers us that fulfills us. Jesus goes, yes, I'm hungry physically, but my focus is not on my physical hunger. My focus is on my spiritual fulfillment in God, in my relationship with the Father. That is a clear picture of how to overcome temptation. In verse 8, it says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you. This is the training process. You see how it is? If you sit, I'll give you the treat. If you bow down, he says, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Temptation is about offering temporary fulfillment for an eternal desire. Overcoming temptation, therefore, is recognizing the truth that no temporal pursuit can fulfill us in the way that God can, as the way that the word that comes from the mouth of God can. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by the word. And so we are called to not worship the things of this world, to not fall down when the music plays and when the temptation comes, but to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, and to find all of our fulfillment and hope in Him, to worship God alone and to serve Him alone. Make no mistake, temptation is always about worship. What you look for for fulfillment in this life is what you worship, and every day we make decisions based on what we worship in our beliefs, in our actions, in our thoughts, and this is where the enemy loves to give us alternatives. So we have an enemy and we have a hunger in this world. We face difficult things. And he has schemes. He has plots. He has strategies. 2 Corinthians 2.11 says, In order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. We're not fooled because we know he has schemes. We're not unaware. Ephesians 6, 11 verse 12 says, put on the full armor of God. And I love that the armor of God is righteousness. It's the righteousness that we have in Jesus. It's your mind being protected by the salvation that you have in Christ. It's the belt of truth around you and all the other elements are found in the gospel. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. He has schemes, he has strategies. 
For our struggle, our battle, is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. This is talking about the cohorts of, of Satan, talking about the demonic forces in this world. It's not flesh and blood. It's not people. It's not, it's not your, your, your siblings or your, your colleagues or, or the people in your world. It's not your next-door neighbor. Our battle is not against people. It's against the enemy of our souls and the enemy of every soul. And so to overcome his schemes, we put on the righteousness, the identity of God, of Christ. So in this story, and, and I know that many of you have heard this story before, but in this story, there are three guys called Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they refuse to bow down. They refuse to give in to this image. And when I, when I read this story, I remembered something um, from when I was younger, when I was uh, you know, about seven, eight, nine years old, I, did, I was part of a tennis club. Up until, up until high school, I was part of this tennis club. And every single Saturday morning, I had tennis lessons from 8 a.m. till 12 in the afternoon. Um, we did it as, as a big group, and, and, and I stayed about two or three blocks from the Calvin Tennis Club. And so every Saturday morning, at the age of eight or nine, I'd jump on my red BMX, and I'd ride up Sunnyway all the way to where the Calvin Tennis Club was, and I'd go and play tennis uh, for the whole morning, and, and I remember that one of our tennis coaches, and this is such a random thing, I actually remembered it this week and, and was telling Lee about it because um, it's such a random thing that happened, but I had, I had one of the tennis coaches, we would play the game around the world, you know, where you have to hit the ball and run around, and you had to make it around to hit in time, and, and if he beat you um, and, and, and you lost to him in this game, then what you had to do was he made the kids, just as a joke, like bow down and worship him, like, like bow down, like, okay, you are the king, and and, and, and I had, as like an eight-year-old, I was like, I can't do this. Like, I can't bow down. Like, I will worship God alone. I will bow down to no tennis coach. You know what I mean? Like, no temptation. And I told him, I was so serious, like an eight-year-old going, I, I can't, sorry, man, I worship God. I can't bow down to you. I'm sorry. But we have the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's, it's, the quint, it's quintessential to the battle that we face and the temptations that we encounter that when, our, when our, de our desires create a demand, the music of our desires, when they create the demand, will we obey them? Will we bow down and worship? Or will we choose to stand the heat and the consequences of the fiery furnace and the threats that are made? We see what happened here in Daniel 3 verse 15. It says, but if you do not worship... You shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? This is King Nebuchadnezzar talking to these three guys who refuse to bow down and worship the image. And he says, who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. That's great faith. I can imagine a little bit of doubt in the back of their minds, like, he will deliver us, we hope. You know, just like. <laughs> and that's why I love this next part that they say. They say, but if not, if he doesn't deliver us, and we do end up dying in this fire, be it known to you, O king, that we will still not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. 
doesn't matter what happens to us, we just will not step into a realm of unfaithfulness. We will not bow down to that image. We know the truth, and we will serve God alone regardless of whether he saves us or not in this moment. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. Like this, he is mad. You have upset this guy, and he is turning the furnace up. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and, were, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Like the guys opening the doors burned to death. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. They fell bound into the furnace. When we, like these men in Babylon, refuse to bow down and to worship, when we decide that we will remain faithful to God, the enemy has a way of turning up the heat. Now, I don't know if you found this to be true in your own life, but people say, you know what? My life was fine before I decided to serve at Anchor Church. And then I signed up to be a part of a team and then all hell bro broke loose, right? Well, I, I, my, my finances were fine when, when I didn't give, but then I gave and all of a sudden in that one month, you know, my tire popped on the highway and, and there was an extra bill that came in and I got a traffic fine and, and, and there was some stuff that broke and there was maintenance that had and, and all these things happened the moment I started giving is when I started struggling. The moment you say, I'm going to say yes to the call of God on my life, then you're like, why are things difficult now? Anybody ever experienced that? The heat gets turned up. The moment you say you're going to be faithful, why? Because you have an enemy that does not want you to be faithful. He wants you to obey his voice. And so he storms against us. In my life, I faced many personal attacks and, and had many things where I knew that the enemy was coming against me, but I'd never faced anything like what I did directly after launching Anchor Church. Directly after, we were just so excited. We were like, it's going to be amazing. We're going to get people together. We're just going to have church. We're going to worship. We're going to reach out. We want to just do good things in this community. We want to be authentic. We want to just share the gospel. Come on, what could go wrong? Three months in, Personally, my entire life fell apart. The people that were on the journey with me at the time know how many, on how many fronts I was fighting battles all at once. It's, if I told you the whole story this morning, which I don't have time for, you would find it unbelievable, the attacks that we faced on my family, on my kids, on my marriage, on, on everything. I had people speaking into my life at the time and in their best efforts to help me, and, and, and I could totally understand where they were coming from, because if you knew the severity of the situation, you'd probably make a similar suggestion. But in their best efforts to help me, they counseled me to resign from, from Anchor Church, to step down, and, and to hand Anchor over. We were three months old, and to hand it over to another church. And I understand their concern. What they said to me in a meeting was, this is a massive knock to you personally, 
your own soul and your, and your own, you know, just your well-being. And, and, and we are worried about you not being able to carry on in this fight. Their exact words were that this kind of a situation is the kind of thing that gives somebody a glass jaw, that, that gives them enough of, a, of, of, a, of an obstacle or a challenge or a break in their lives that they won't be able to continue effectively in the future. And so the, the idea was some injury time for me to take two or three years to recover and then try and come back after that. And again, I respect what they were trying to do. I'm grateful for people that challenged me in that moment. And they wanted to throw in the towel on my behalf. But here's the thing. They just didn't know me well enough. And by knowing me, what I mean is they didn't know my journey. They didn't know the punches that I had taken and the hits that I had endured and the attacks that had already come against me up until that point. They didn't know how time and time and time again in my 15 years of ministry, I had learned that no matter what you face, God is with you in the fire. God is with you in the fire. And I said to them, you want to throw in the towel, but there's just one problem. You haven't been in the corner while I fight. You haven't seen me fight. You, you don't know what I'm capable of. I'm telling you, I will work through this by the grace of God. I will do it authentically with my church. And I'm telling you that there will be a future date where God will be able to reveal His glory through His grace in my life. I said, I, res I respect you guys and I thank you, but I am not going to walk away. I'm going to choose to trust. It's kind of like that, Shadrach. You know, throw us in the furnace, but if God helps, you know, I believe he can deliver me, but even if he doesn't, I'm not going to bow down. I'm not going to walk away. I learned, as sure as I'm alive, that this one thing is true. What we see here in the next verses of Daniel 3, verse 24, it says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose up in haste, and he declared to his counselors, did, not, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like the Son of God. There was another in the fire. There was a fourth man in the fire. What I learned is that there is no test or trial or temptation that you or I could face where Jesus is not with us in the fire. And you know what the fire does? It doesn't bring Jesus' presence on the scene. It makes us aware that Jesus has been present all along. God is with us, that's true. He is Emmanuel. And it's those moments when you face the difficulty, when you hear the music, when you feel the hunger, when you feel the desire, when you feel the lack, when, that you look and you realize, but God is with us. He is here. It makes us aware of the presence of Jesus, the difficulties that you face. It doesn't matter what's happening to you. It doesn't matter what you're going through when you know the one who stands with you in the midst of it. He is one like the Son of God. Did we not cast three men into the fire? But now there are four. But he also says, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And now we see four men unbound. You know what I've also learned and realized? 
that the only thing that the fire of temptation and of trials and of difficulty and of hardship is going to do, the only thing that the fire is going to burn is the restraints and the limitations that the enemy tried to put on your life. The only thing that will be burnt away is the label that somebody said and the limitations and, the, and, and, and their estimation of you. That's what will be burnt away, but not you. You will come through the fire. And so many times we can learn to embrace the fire because we know that the fire became the refiner's fire. And the fiery furnace became the furnace of freedom. It was there to set you free. It was there to shape you. It was there to mold you. It was there to develop your character. It was there to do something rich and expensive in you. It was there to set you up for the future that God has for you. It was there to cause you to become an effective vessel in the hand of God, to empty you of yourself and to fill you with faith. It brings power to your life when you've gone through the fire and you've seen Jesus with you in the midst of, of, of it. This is why James encourages us in James 1 verse 2. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith, that testing means refining produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Romans 5 tells us the same thing in verse 3. It says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is a little counterintuitive. I'm sure we'll all agree there. When you're going through suffering, when you're facing trials of various kinds, when life is hard, count it joy. Rejoice in the hardships. Rejoice in it. Because when you suffer, you can be sure that God is at work, that he's refining your faith and shaping your character and producing hope in your life. I love what C.S. Lewis says. He says, hardships often prepare ordinary people for an extraordinary destiny. Ordinary people. This is a bit of a random analogy, but I've always felt that God is the greatest judo fighter of all time. I've never done judo, but what I understand about judo is that it is about using your enemy's momentum against them. And that's exactly what God does. He takes the momentum of the enemy that as, as the attack comes, God shifts that attack to cast the enemy to the ground. He uses the very attack against your life to develop you and to work to, in, to um, your end and to his glory. And so what I want to tell you, because some of you have suffered loss, you've gone through hardship, and you wondered, I still feel the hurt from those moments. Why did God allow it? Can I tell you, no attack or hardship or suffering that you've ever gone through is in vain. God is using everything that you've been through to develop your faith in Him. It's to your benefit and for His glory. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that for those who love God, 
All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. All things, all things work together for good. To be honest with you, whenever I've faced my, my own moments in the furnace and whenever I've gone through difficult moments, you know, I, I was the kind of person that I always wanted to be well thought of by everybody. I wanted people to like me. I wanted to, to have the admiration of people. I wanted to be seen as well together. And, 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 and in my faith, I wanted to be an example. And so I didn't want to have, have things that I went through that people could point at and say, oh, but he went through that, or, or he struggled with that, or he had an issue here. I, I didn't want any of that to be a part of my story. I wanted a clean slate before man. That was something that I had to deal with. And so when I went through certain moments in the furnace, part of why it pained me so much is that I thought, now people will always know that I've gone through something like this. Like, I felt like, will this taint me? Even if I come through it, will it ever be the same again? Will people ever look at me the same way again? Will I, will I ever have the same credibility again with others? I worried about the effects of the test. So sometimes we're not even worrying about whether or not we'll get through it. We're worrying about what we will look like once we've come through it. And I worried about that. How will this affect my future, my ministry, my church? Will it change the way people see me? Could I ever really overcome this? How many of you know, if you're married, when you make a fire, you know, you're a man, you make a fire to feed your family on the gas bry. And so... But when you, make, when you make a fire, how many of you know that it is impossible to stand by the briar and not have the smell of smoke on you, right? If you've been by the fire, there's a smell that lingers, and you get into bed, and your, and your wife looks at you and goes, mm-mm, shower, right? Because you smell like smoke. Now, can you imagine Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They're like, yes, we might survive this, but what are we going to look like on the other side? Like, how many burns are we going to pick up? What's going to happen? You know, like, when you just get close to the fire, it singes the hair on your hand or your eyebrows or or whatever, you know. What is our hair going to look like when we come out of this furnace? What are we going to smell like? And maybe you're going through a test today, and you're saying, what am I going to look like? What am I going to smell like on the other end of this test that I'm going through? And that's why I find so much courage and encouragement in this scripture. Daniel 3 verse 26 says, Then Nebuchadnezzar came near the door of the burning fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God. Now it's the Most High God. Come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed. Not even the hair singed. The Bible says God knows every hair on your head. Every hair on your head. The hair on their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. And no smell of fire came upon them. The tests that you've gone through, the struggles that you've had or that you might have right now, the issues that you faced in your past. God is saying, when I deliver you, it will be such a complete deliverance and such a miracle that the fire will have no effect on your body. And not only will it have no effect on your body, not only will you not be burnt, not only will you come out alive on the other side, you will not even have the smell of the fire on you any longer. It will not define you. It's not your identity. You're not the one who came out of the fire. You're the one who stood with Jesus. 
in the presence of the one who is like the Son of God. That's the identity we carry forward. Not even the smell of the fire will be upon your life. The very suggestion of your past and your failures and your hardships will be removed from you as far as the east is from the west. And ultimately, this is why. The final verses in verse 28 says, Nebuchadnezzar, in Daniel 3:28. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. There is no other God. And sometimes people don't know what to do with a miracle when they see it. They don't know how to recognize it. And they'll look at it and they'll criticize, how can this be? But when God does a miracle that is so real and so complete and so obvious as he brings you through the fire, the reason why he does it is so that other people will turn around and look and say, certainly, certainly God has had a hand in this story because there is no other God that can rescue in this way. Pull those idols down. This is the one most high, true God who rescues in this way. People will look at your life and say, if God can do that in their life, I believe he can do it in my life. It brings glory to God. You become a trophy of his grace, a testimony of his goodness so that others will look to God and trust in him. So if you're going through a trial, or if you've been through some trials, I want you to know that your deliverance is complete in Christ. There is a fourth man in the fire, and the only thing that will be burnt will be the restraints and the limitations that people have put on you and that the enemy has tried to relegate you to. And your life and our lives and this church will continually overcome again and again and again and again and again until the point that people look at us astonished. They get up in haste and go, were they not in the fire? Surely no other God can rescue in this way. Amen? Amen. God is with you. Let's stand this morning. Come on. I want to pray for you. If you're in a fire this morning, if you feel like you're facing temptations, whether it's a crisis situation or something that you're battling on the inside, Jesus is with you. Let's pray that we all become aware of his presence. Jesus, we thank you right now.